You're listening to You Need to Shut Up, a podcast about researchers with dangerous ideas and the people who hate them. You're listening to Episode 7 of You Need to Shut Up, and today we're talking intellectual dishonesty. Just a warning, this one may get controversial. As I teased last episode, attacks on researchers are made worse by science's commitment to objectivity, not better. While we like to think objectivity removes bias from our work, it tends to actually make us blind to it. Think about it. If you're taught to see yourself as objective, as neutral, as only interested in the evidence, it makes it a whole lot harder to recognise that twist in your gut, moral disgust. You start to assume that if you disagree with something, it's because it's objectively wrong. Something's amiss. And the more you try to find out the truth for yourself, the more the evidence supports your view. You know how to do research. You've been doing it for years. You've been trained to sort good evidence from bad evidence, peer-reviewed studies from blog posts. You become even more sure you're right. And this other person is wrong. We like to believe that if someone is trained in science they will necessarily agree with a particular scientific consensus, whether it be on climate change, vaccinations, or genetically modified organisms. We see it all the time. If this person only knew more about the facts, they'd understand. But scientific training can actually entrench pre-existing beliefs and values because it gives us a sense of authority and certainty. If we follow our scientific training without actively thinking about what we research and why, the evidence we seek out and the conclusions we come to, we risk just confirming our biases and being none the wiser about it. Social epistemologist Steve Fuller says this is a huge failing of scientific training. Scientists are typically just trained in, in you might say, research skills in the, in the narrow sense of being able to uh, encode and communicate to other fellow scientists as if nobody else exists other than those people. Um, and this is why even, you know, scientists have a hard time even, you know, teaching sometimes, uh, you know, uh, so, so I do think, yes, the training of scientists is so, spe- is so specialized, especially at the level of communication, that then when their stuff gets greater exposure, uh, they're completely blindsided. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in fact, this is, uh, I, I, I've commented on this a lot. I think this is a real failure of, of, of training, uh, actually across uh, academic disciplines generally. Uh, And too often this is made out to be a a kind of mark of professionalization. We create a situation where intellectual dishonesty is actively ingrained in scientists. It's considered a good thing to be blind to all the messy humanness of science. One of the academics I spoke to, Professor Mark Largent, is a historian of science and medicine at Michigan State University. Mark articulated this problem of intellectual dishonesty through his experience in the autism vaccine debate. If the scientists and the medical professionals were happy to keep the claim that people who were anxious about vaccines were just thinking that vaccines cause autism because the scientists and medical professionals had a lot of evidence that they could bring to bear on that question. And parents didn't really have a good guide to articulate this myriad of real concerns that they had about the modern vaccine policy. I mean, because of the way in which insurance and medical care is structured in the United States, 
a child gets 25 inoculations by the time they're 18 months old. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a very, very, very intense schedule. They get three dozen by the time that they're, they're six years old. Um, and, you know, sometimes at one doctor visit, you're scheduled to get as many as six inoculations um, for an infant. And that's just, it's just hard. It's an yeah. awful large number. And you realize that, you know, it's not nature that's making you have this high number. It's this very interesting combination of, um, pol- you know, public policy, insurance. We have, you know, our medical system is just so fouled yeah. um, that anybody with any sort of thoughtfulness about it is going to be very uncomfortable about it. Um, so there's all these different reasons why. And, and, and autism is really the only thing that's out there as a claim for why someone might be anxious about vaccines. Intellectual dishonesty prevents us from empathizing with the people we consider opponents. It creates a complete inability to comprehend that someone can look at the same evidence and come to a different conclusion. They're either crazy, getting paid, or just idiots. You're either like heartless or brainless. It's yeah. it's almost like a, like a Wizard of Oz syndrome, right? Either have no courage, you have no brain, or you have no heart. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and the, I think those kinds of ad hominem attacks are really useful in preventing people from empathizing with one another, preventing people from actually dealing with one another's root concerns. And even the people who who have those concerns, because they respond with other ad hominem attacks, they don't have to admit whatever is at root in their concerns. The vaccine stuff, I saw a lot of you know people's real deep-felt concerns were like they, they didn't trust the medical system, trust the companies who who are um, selling vaccines. Um, they didn't trust that the government was protecting them, right? There's the real, without ever being able to articulate it, a real deep belief in regulatory capture that that the that corporations had seized the democratic institutions and, and you know, the government wasn't there for us anymore. Mark's insights from the vaccine debate resonated with what I encountered in the wind turbine syndrome field. That debate centred primarily around health concerns. Either they're entirely real and debilitating for those who live nearby, or they're psychosomatic or just made up. But when I conducted preliminary surveys in the towns with the most health complaints, health concerns were barely mentioned. Instead, those against the wind farm overwhelmingly said it had divided communities torn neighbourhoods apart, that the wind farm developers had lied to them, betrayed them, and now the community was split down the middle, depending on who benefited from the turbines. And yet this isn't what the debate looked like. The anti-wind groups talked about health concerns, seemingly because they'd been the most effective argument against them. Policies changed throughout Australia, crippling wind farm investment when the debate was at its most heated. And pro-wind groups said these people were nuts or lying because they had so much evidence to dispute it. No one was talking about the underlying problem. In the first episode, we heard from Katan Joshi, who worked for a renewable energy company during this time. He says it's hard to deny some wind developments did cause division and conflict. An attitude it's much easier to inhabit now he's out of the industry. It's actually quite refreshing to be able to kind of look back on that. Not being in the wind industry anymore, 
I, I really like it. Just it just seems so clear that essentially that's not a that's not a problem inherent to, to wind farms, but a problem inherent to wind developers. Um, and that's something really. It's something to do with corporate culture. Um, it's something to do with attitudes. Um, and of course, I think it's really important for industries to kind of take ownership and responsibility. And uh, you know, I, re- I remember just being on the radio a few years ago, and somebody just said to me straight up, they were like, "Do you think wind turbines are responsible for dividing communities?" And I tried giving a bit of a nuanced take, but really in my mind, I was like, yeah, I think the way that they developed, uh, like essentially, yes, but, but you can fix it, understanding what the problem is and then taking a sl- using a different model of development. So yeah, it's funny. It's funny just looking back on that now. Um, because it's my views really, my view has really kind of uh, changed a bit. It, I would, I would argue in a positive way. It's a problem that can be fixed with effort. We're in these fields where the stakes are so high, there's so much anger and resentment and bitterness on all sides, and yet we're somehow trying to remain objective and impartial. So how do you reconcile your gut reactions with your intellectual commitment to objectivity? For me, there's a risk here. I just don't think the ethos of science gives researchers the tools to negotiate these competing forces. We're taught that thinking about our biases, even considering them at all in the research process, is a bad thing. More often than not, we try to push them aside or keep them in check, rather than actively reflecting on them. In episode two, we heard some of my conversation with anthropologist and all-round badass Professor Simone Dennis. In this part of the interview, we talked about the myth of objectivity in science. Another thing that that came out of um, my research was this idea that objectivity and reflexivity mm. are somehow incompatible, that, that there's this idea within science and among scientists that as soon as we start thinking about things that might bias us or our values or what, what we're passionate about or, or our feelings or our, our gut responses, that as soon as we acknowledge those things, we're no, no longer doing science. And I know that that's something we talked about a lot, mm. that they actually don't have to be incompatible. We, 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 we can actually strengthen our research and, and be more rigorous if we are able to reflect on who we are, what our position is, how yeah. we're perceived by others. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that is actually um, always a property of good scientific research, that one would uh, be aware of one's own responses to whatever is being studied. I, of course, know that best in terms of the animal field where I've done research before, where... Um, it's perhaps uh, instinctive to think that scientists would have to be separate from the animals they study in order to produce unbiased research results. But um, recent development in science has been to suggest that when one has uh, clear reflexive relations with animals and is constantly thinking about how they're relating to them, the data is much better. Um, So a good example of that is rats being involved in neuro research where if you have animals which are at distance from you and you go in and you try to handle them or try to interact with them in some way their response is trauma trauma because they don't when they aren't aware of and aren't used to people handling them so a group of scientists that i worked with developed ways of um, of relating to rats in really clear kind of ways that they thought the rats could understand and they develop relationships with those animals. And when they did, they're in a much better position to say, well, this is an untraumatized rat whose research results now won't express trauma and corrupt the data. So 
there are much better ways of thinking about science as entailed and as reflexive process. And I think that it's, it's something of a myth, you know, that science is this removed or conducted at remove. That's not possible in any kind of physical or embodied world. And it's very likely not possible in any kind of analytic world. So this is something that I think needs a lot of work. And it's certainly public perception of science. But I think objectivity and reflexivity are, are richly entailed. And they don't need to mean that there is some kind of false distinction between the world and yourself as you, as you conduct research. Reflexivity and objectivity aren't incompatible. Being able to reflect on your position, your values and the baggage you bring to your research actually helps you to be objective. It's only by examining your biases, really holding them up to the light, can you acknowledge them and ensure they don't blind you from being open to things that make you uncomfortable. And they can also open you up to new lines of inquiry because you may see things that others don't. I mean, something that, that I kind of concluded was that we're actually doing scientists a disservice when we don't embed reflexivity into research training because so many of my participants said things like, you know, I thought that part of science was identifying a gap or identifying that something didn't add up in the data and mm. and trying to investigate what that was and and I was punished for doing that. You know, I thought I was doing all the right things. I thought I was having these, you know, these light bulb moments and and following them. And so I don't understand why people are responding to me in this way. And I think if we were able to if scientists were were kind of empowered to to be able to think about who they are and what their position is and, you know, why people may respond in a particular way to their research, especially if they're a woman or if they're um, young or, you know, in a demographic different from the people whose, you know, work, who's impacted by the research, that there might be these things that it is actually important to the research to acknowledge these things. Yeah, those those sorts of positionalities tend to or can be made to or can be made to show a particular honing that allows you to see precisely what you said, to allows you to see something amiss, something adrift, something that doesn't quite add up, something puzzling that may be um, unavailable to somebody else. And so the examination of one's own position and what's unique and important about that can do two things. I mean, one thing that we know quite well is that um, and has been quite well explored is is gendered science, right? And the impacts that that has had both on scientific production and the way in which science might be conducted. So the two sides of that story. The second thing is that those peculiarities of self and even things like your your own um, institutional training will value some things over other things even though we tend to think about science as a very flat kind of area where people are taught the same things they come from different persons your training is different at different institutions in subtle ways you know that's why different institutions are known for different kinds of things and specialities your 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 kind of value own value system will permit you to see things that others might not be able to see. And similarly, you may be blinded to the things that other people might be more um, prone to seeing. And so I'm of the view that we should use those things as, as tools, as advantages to be able to more sharply probe particular areas and to celebrate that particular probing when it, when it comes to pass. 
Science communication expert Dr. Lindy Orthia also had some insights about the myth of scientific objectivity when we spoke. You know, this idea that science is is objective and, and neutral and detached and, and all of these sorts of things, to me it it kind of it really encourages this intellectual dishonesty so that when you have that that gut response that I've out of, that's wrong, that's clearly, there's something amiss here in this research if they found something that, that you know, contradicts what I, what I believe. Instead of kind of thinking, okay, well, I'm a human being and I have had this very human response to it, let's look at, let's critically look at why I'm so offended by it and why I feel so strongly about it. It's, well, I know I'm an expert, I know I'm... I'm objective, the, the kind of narrative we tell ourselves that, yes. that we're objective. And so it means that mm. there's, they're, they're even more sure that their, their conclusions are correct yes. because they think they have this foundational yes. objectivity. Yes, I think, I think you're right. And I think perhaps the problem there is in the way that we train scientists is absolutely to, to this, you know, belief, uh, this ideological belief, this privileging of, of science as this um, uh, royal road to truth or whatever, that if if you learn that, if you're taught that, and you don't get any other opinion during your, your scientific education, um, you don't get the opportunity to learn from debates within disciplines like science communication or the history of science or philosophy of science about the extent to which that might be true or how things have changed over time or the number of times that somebody seems to be right but actually all the evidence has fallen another way and they've just been proved wrong through no error of their own just incomplete view of the you know view of the world or whatever it is if you're not exposed to all of that and not it's not demanded of you to engage with that kind of perspective there is absolutely this push in science this ideological baggage that's attached to um to this thing called science that yeah i think can can easily lead someone uh naively to believe that because they've had x number of years of training that that they're absolutely what they think now, that their instincts are honed enough to be completely objective and and therefore their knee-jerk reactions are just a response to the actual evidence of the data instead of the fact that it might be something else or there might be an element of something else. But, yeah, I think, I mean, for people outside of that that kind of um, system enough, um, you know, we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can accept that that modern Western science has produced some really useful knowledge while also acknowledging that it's not always right. I mean, mm. to me, that's a no-brainer. It's not that hard to acknowledge that and that scientists are human beings with all the failings of humans and that when we're products of our culture as much as we might try and depart from that within the methods of modern Western science, which is potentially impossible at the extreme end. It doesn't mean it's worth, not worth trying, but, I mean, it's complex. I, I, it's not a problem to me. I think it seems mm. obvious to me, obviously, um, but yeah, I could, could see how that could easily happen, that people are, are so trained by elite institutions to absolutely believe in their training um, and that, you know, journal paper X in esteemed journal Y is, uh, is, tr- is as close to truth as we can possibly get and therefore, ergo, um, <laughs> all else follows from there. I don't expect this podcast to revolutionise the way we see academic freedom. All I'm saying is... Let's all get a bit more comfortable with being uncomfortable. As science historian Alice Drager recently put it, if you haven't changed your mind recently, how do you know it's still working? You Need to Shut Up is created and produced by me, Dr. Jackie Hepner. 
Steph David is our intern turned sound editor and mixer. Early production help came from CJ Josh and Dr. Will Grant. Theme music is Falling by Sephiros, used with permission. Thanks to all the incredible researchers who gave me their time and wisdom. I wouldn't even have a story without you. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of the Australian National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science at the Australian National University. Subscribe to You Need to Shut Up on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review and tell your friends. I'm hoping this podcast is just the start of a bigger conversation. So if you or someone you know has been through something similar, please, please, please get in touch. You can reach me at you need to shut up podcast at gmail.com and check out you need to shut up.com for more episodes, news and extras that didn't make it into the podcast. <laughs>